It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome, welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am your host, L. Joy Williams, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist. And, you know, Every time you listen to the show, I say I'm excited about the conversation or I'm excited about the guests that I'm about to bring to the front of the class because genuinely I am. And so this morning I am bringing two of my brilliant friends to the front of the class, but we're going to start first with my beloved Dr. Adriana, who is now an assistant professor in the School of Education at the University of California, Irvine. I met her back when, when she was at NYU, I think at the Research Alliance for New York City Schools, studying and teaching there. Dr. Adriana, thank you so very much for joining. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's so great to see you. This is a full circle moment. You were on the very first episode of Sunday Civics. We weren't even on the radio then. And we were talking yeah. about education. And I came to your office at NYU right. for the conversation with my little kit. And now I'm fancy. <laughs> Uh, and so are Super you. fancy. <laughs> but particularly, yeah. I brought you back to have this conversation because you have a book out. Your book is Am I My Brother's Keeper? Educational Opportunities and Outcomes for Black and Brown Boys that was published by Harvard Education Press. And it examines how school districts across the country can embed racial equity into their policies and practices in educating Black boys. And of course, we have lots to talk about as it pertains to the book. But let's start there first about the process of the book and how it came to be. And, you know, just a general overview of your words there. Yeah. So again, I'm so happy to be with you again. And this is such a pleasure. Um, so thank you for inviting me. I, you know, this work started back in 2012. So probably around the time that I did that first show with you. Um, the New York City Department of Education was launching a, an initiative focused on Black and Latino boys. Um, and it was more than education at the time. It was actually under the umbrella of Young Men's Initiative and focused on education, but also employment, health, and criminal justice. So there were these four components. And uh, we were fortunate enough to be involved and be the uh, lead principal investigators of the evaluation of the education component of YMI, which was called the Expanded Success Initiative. And so this book was really an attempt to um, summarize what we learned in a way that was practical and applicable for schools, for districts, for leaders, uh, and even and for others working with youth and particularly with black and brown uh, boys. I think that's important to note that this was one, that there was this national initiative under the Obama administration called My Brother's Keeper, right? Mm -hmm. But then there was here in New York City, this initiative, was it? timed that way was one before the other i think i want to provide a little clarity on that that is such a great question because i think um i try to contextualize this in the book but interestingly enough the new york city initiative was a predecessor to uh a, my brother's keeper under president obama um and and it also i think either inspired or at least paralleled and overlapped with a lot of the building blocks the essential building blocks of my brother's keeper including the community partnerships um civic action obviously the focus on boys of color but some of the ways and processes by which we make change i think were pretty similar but yes um esi started before my brother's keeper so it's an it's an interesting um part of the story yeah, I think it was important context, you know, as I started reading, because because it happened around the same time, myself, <laughs> you know, and probably a, a number of others thought that this was connected to that. And mm -hmm. knowing that there were these other movements happening, not only here in New York, but across the country on particularly focusing on 
the educational success in the different nuances that exist for Black and Latino boys in public schools, I think it was important to have that context that this wasn't something, one, that Obama dreamed up by himself, right? Because we attribute it to him. We say Mm -hmm. Obama's, you know, my brother's keeper initiative, right? But not that this was sort of this organizing initiative across the country and even here in New York, which was specifically focused, that was built on educational scholarship by others who have been organizing on this for some time. Absolutely. And I I had, again, the great fortune to be connected with and have relationships with the other leaders across the country. Um, So there's a similar initiative in Oakland. There are people doing this in Minneapolis, in Chicago, in Boston, in in a small um, small cities like Guilford, North Carolina. And, And so there's a lot of there was a lot of energy. I'm sure there's still sustained energy, even though I'm not in New York City anymore. Um, and other things, uh, movements that have come out of these initial initiatives. So it's exciting to see. So let's dive a little deeper talking about why such initiative needs to exist in the first place. Mm-hmm. Anytime, and you know, uh, Dr. Young says this all the time, who you and I both know, is just like, we're very good at diagnosing the dispar- the racial disparities that exist, but we don't want to actually create, you know, <laughs> race-based solutions (laughs) to Mm -hmm. some of these problems. Mm -hmm. And My Brother's Keeper initiatives and and these policy pieces overall are a way to address that, that if we're saying there are different outcomes or Black boys are experiencing different educational outcomes and behavioral issues and a, a number of other things in public schools, then we need to create programs and services that specifically address that. So talk about why the need for it in the first place. Mm -hmm. So in New York City, what was interesting, um, and this was work based on the New York City's Department of Education's uh, research on their own outcomes, is that the graduation rates had been increasing for all groups, for all racial, ethnic, and gender groups for a matter of time. Um, But at the same time, some of the disparities in college readiness um, and college outcomes were pretty large. And I think one of the reasons why they focused on young males in particular, in addition to it being part of the Young Men's Initiative, is that we even saw a gender disparity. So um, Black and Latina uh, young women were actually showing um, higher rates of college readiness um, and college outcomes than their male counterparts. And so this felt like a, a motivation for the Department of Education and also perhaps an opportunity. Another thing that they noticed, and I usually show a graph to make this really clear, but even among uh, boys who were coming in in the ninth grade, uh, having completed their eighth grade very successfully and having scored pretty high on the state examinations, um, even for those students, you saw a pretty big uh, disparity by the time they finished high school. And so that's why they located ESI within the high school grades, because again, motivation, but also an opportunity Um, to maybe change something within those four years that was um, clearly not working for boys of color in the way that schools and teachers and principals were anticipating. Yeah, that was going to be my next question in terms of why I started high school, Mm -hmm. particularly when you have a number of these indicators that you see from kids in general, right? Like the drop-off begins around middle school or towards the end of elementary school, if you will. And I didn't know if it was just a timing, if it was just like, a, you know, an immediate intervention standpoint. Absolutely. No, it's it's fair. And I think even a lot of the interviews that I had with um, educators said, I wish this would have started earlier. And uh, Mayor de Blasio, who came afterwards, um, after Mayor Bloomberg, who was mayor at the time, obviously launched pre-K, universal pre-K. And now I think they're trying to do 3K. Um, and so, yeah, I think it doesn't, it, it obviously requires multiple interventions at multiple points along the students' educational pathways. But this mm-hmm. was the focus of this um, particular initiative. Yeah. So the, the initiative, it was about 15,000 Black and Latino boys. And, and what was the setup? What was the structure? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so the 
Uh, ESI was located within 40 public New York City public high schools. Uh, they had to have a population of Black and Latino boys that it was at least above 30%. Many of them had a higher proportion of Black and Latino males in their school. Um, they also had to show um, some relative success. So these weren't the most low performing schools. Some of the rationale behind that was just that um, that they were they would be able to implement a brand new initiative and not really worry about you know principals leaving and very high turnover rates. So, um, but when we did a comparison of these schools to the rest of the New York City population, they were very similar in terms of special education students, immigrant students, um, English language learners, or multilingual students. So pretty comparable overall. We also for the evaluation included a set of comparison schools so we could actually understand the impact that the initiative was having on schools. And so that was part of the design. Um, but the ESI in itself was offered to 40 New York City public schools with, with as you said, um, serving that many Black and Latino males. Well, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a nerd. And so I can dive down into <laughs> like the detail or whatever. But for people listening all across the country, right, you know, basically what you're saying is there was this, you know, model of how can we do direct intervention, particularly for Black and Latino males in high school to have greater education outcomes. But then there were other markers, as you mentioned, in terms of employment, in terms of justice and things of that nature. But I, I want to get quickly, because I want to dive down into, you know, what worked, what didn't work, that might be great recommendations for, we have a lot of teachers who listen to the show, a lot of administrators of what are some of the things that worked, didn't work, that they should possibly pick this up to think about how they can implement some of these things in their own school district. Yeah. So the, um, one of the headlines, which, um, is the less encouraging one is that we didn't see an impact on college readiness and college outcomes. And that's not to say that many of the black and Latino boys in those schools um, didn't go on to college. Many of them did. Um, we saw a very high uh, SAT taking um, proportion in these schools, um, a, a high proportion of college applications and enrollment, but we didn't see any difference between these schools and the comparison schools. And I have a few hypotheses in the book that I talk about. Um, I'll try to explain why that possibly is, and I can go into that with you. And at the same time, we did see a positive and significant impact on students' kind of socio-emotional outcomes. So their sense of well-being, their sense of safety, their sense of connection with adults. Um, and they're also exposure to culturally relevant education. So the experiences and the kind of opportunities to learn in ways that were relevant and engaging with students, we definitely saw a positive impact on those kinds of kind of socio-emotional outcomes and also kind of the culture and community of the schools. Uh, we talked to over 500 um, teachers, actually more 800 teachers, students, principals, and we heard a lot of the same thing. So um, in terms of what worked and what didn't, I lay out in the book really specifically about how, what, what that looked like, how that culture and community changing aspects of the initiative worked, um, and how other schools might be able to apply it in their own context, and then how they could have strengthened those academic outcomes, because I think obviously that's one of the primary outcomes that the district and the schools wanted to see, and it didn't happen, at least it didn't happen in the time um, that we studied those schools. And it could have um, very well taken a lot longer. As you know, making school-wide change is, um, is a long-term process that might have just taken a little bit longer than we had to study. We'll be right back. Schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is the teacher? Welcome back to Sunday Civic. I want to step back a second and think about, or at least have you describe as you do in the book, like what is the current school environment for Black and Latino boys mm -hmm. that makes it necessary for an intervention to happen to begin with? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I started off by talking about the college readiness outcomes and that being a motivation for the district. But we know from decades of research that Black and brown boys are 
um, over-policed in schools, are more likely to be suspended for very minor infractions starting in preschool. They're less likely to see um, teachers who look like them, textbooks who reflect them, um, or their identities. And, and so, and, all, and also because of racial and ethnic segregation of our school systems, they're also more likely to be in schools with uh, less experienced teachers, uh, less access to advanced coursework like AP and honors classes and college advanced coursework that would put them in a good position to succeed and, and thrive in college. And so the, cumulate, the cumulative effect of some of these disproportionate um, opportunities or lack of opportunities um, it requires, I think, an intervention that addresses all of those things. So some of the, the major thrust of ESI, and I think one of the reasons why I was excited to evaluate this work is because it was really focused on race. It was really focused on the racism that boys experience outside of schools and in their own classrooms. Um, and talking about that freely and openly with teachers, um, there was a, a very large component of professional development, capacity building. How do we um, address things like implicit bias, um, but also how do our systems, not just changing hearts and minds, but also how, does our, how do our organizational policies and practices also disadvantage the boys that we serve. So it it was, um, and again, I, I, I lay a lot of this out in the book as far as um, what that training was, how it can be applied and how it actually changed teacher practice and teacher perceptions. Um, but it, and there are ways that it could have been strengthened. I think the focus on academics, I think there was a very large focus on kind of youth development and youth voice and, and that's so important. Um, and at the same time, only a few of the schools um, really, really emphasize um, the academic portion. And as you said before, um, it, it maybe high school is not enough time. Um, there are some um, skills, some fundamental learning opportunities that may have strengthened the entire the impact of the um, of the uh, initiative if they had started in middle school. So there are still a lot of things to learn from what worked and what didn't work. You approach this not only as an academic, right, as a researcher, but you've also taught in the classroom as well, right? And so speaking right. directly to teachers, there's also, you know, what could work or what doesn't work, <laughs> you know, once you, the teacher, are in front of these little human beings or in the case of high school, big human beings at, <laughs> at this point and what actually works. What are some of those things like putting back your in front of the classroom hat on mm -hmm. that, you know, may be different from the, you know, academic researcher uh, perspective? Yeah, I mean, I really come to this work, as you said, from an academic research perspective and a personal one as well. I'm um, the daughter of Ecuadorian immigrants. And for my family and for my mom in particular, education is really the opportunity to to meet the American dream, right? To, um, to, to make uh, the future generations better. And for me, it, it has largely worked. But when I became a teacher, um, I realized that uh, students with a lot of motivation, with a lot of intrinsic ability and capacity were still shut out of a lot of opportunities. And sometimes by the very schools that were supposed to serve them and by the very teachers um, that should have had their best interests at heart. So I definitely come at this from um, the skills of a researcher, but the real kind of passion and enthusiasm that um, and 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 love, frankly, the love, as you said, it doesn't matter how big they students are. <laughs> um, seeing them as humans, as 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 people worth um, loving and respecting, and putting a lot of effort. And as you said, I think resources. I mean, you can't um, limit the importance of actual money uh, and investment in classrooms and textbooks and training teachers or professional development for teachers. And so some of ESI, and I didn't mention this at first, but um, part of ESI was uh, an affordance of um, 250,000 over three years for each of the 40 public, each of the 40 ESI schools, which amounted to about three, your husband probably knows, three to 10% of a school's budget. So it's not an inordinate amount of money, but it's enough to make some difference. And so we can't underestimate, I think, the importance of actual investment in schools. Yeah. 
Well, before we get to, because I want to get your perspective on the national My Brother's Keeper piece and how this connects or is different. I want to talk about that money really quickly because we just a couple of weeks ago had a conversation, something that I've been in tuned in is following those education dollars from the COVID bills on the federal mm-hmm. level that mm-hmm. are trickling mm-hmm. down to states and then to schools. And, you know, I've been part of the advocacy here on the ground, talking to principals and teachers, school leaders, and even parents and saying, there should not be somebody telling you we ain't got enough money for X, given how much money is going to be trickling down, you know, mm-hmm. into school districts. And, you know, from your perspective, I wanted you to talk a little bit more about how resources are connected to that, because quite often, you know, there's two conversations. One, we don't have enough money for that. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, in Mm -hmm. trying to be creative, if principals, if schools uh, or, or even individual teachers are trying to be creative in how they engage the students that they have, there's this, well, we don't have enough money for it. Right. Or there's a conversation which happens in political campaigns. We spend so much per student, (laughs) you you know, and we should have different outcomes. Mm -hmm. Why is finding like the the money for public education so so convoluted? Yeah. Well, again, uh, the way that some of these um, systems are set up, and this is a little outside of the scope of the study, but they do disadvantage. Um, communities that have already been historically oppressed and marginalized and disadvantaged by other um, federal, state, and local policies. But in terms of really good investment with money, and at least from the example of ESI, a lot of that was spent on professional development. Um, Professional, it's not glamorous, it's not sexy, right? Uh, Professional development for teachers because ultimately they are on the, on the front line. I don't like to use that terminology because it's not war, but they are in the classrooms every day interfacing with students. And so how do we uh, increase their, again, addressing any kind of implicit bias or racial bias and also um, expanding their own skills and expertise and their craft in whatever subject they teach. I think the other piece that um, was not a part of ESI, maybe in a few schools, but really thinking about the the buildings, the infrastructure, um, students really notice when buildings are dilapidated, when it seems like the bathrooms aren't taken care of. It sends a message that they are either cared for or not cared for as people, as human beings. And so I think attending to some of the physical aspects of a building is important. And I think the other pieces are more human resources. So um, people like guidance counselors, um, school psychologists, even um, other mental and physical health um, uh, uh, organizations or partnerships. Some of those are um, a little bit more expensive because it's you have to sustain them over time, and yet they are incredibly important um, to serving students holistically. And so that's something that, again, um, not all 40 schools invested their money in because the, the amount of money may not have stretched the entire four years of the initiative. But um, I, I do think some of them, and then the community schools uh, reform that came after it was was really focused on how do we serve the whole students, their mental needs, their physical needs, and also their academic needs. Yeah, that makes sense. So getting to the uh, national conversation about my brother's keeper, you know, one of the criticisms I I, I remember during the public conversation, you know, putting aside what you know, white people being mad and conservatives being mad because they're going to be mad about everything. But there was, you know, this criticism, and I'm not sure the ESI or uh, the program here in New York City received as much, but certainly on the national level, the My Brother's Keeper initiative received criticism about leaving out Black girls, Mm -hmm. um, Black and Latino girls who also experience a different environment as it pertains to education and need different investments. What were your thoughts about that critique and and how to be more inclusive in that standpoint? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think there was ever a time that I presented about this work that that wasn't raised um, and, and very fairly. Yeah, as I said, I think ESI was really focused on particular stats that show that there were racial and ethnic disparities, but also gender disparities. And so it really was 
motivated by those um, by those outcomes. But I think if you look at things like suspensions, and I talked about suspensions earlier, but um, black girls are also um, six more times likely to be suspended. Um, and they face different issues with um, sexual harassment, even among their peers with, uh, 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 you know, boys within their own high schools um, and, and teenage pregnancy and some of the other um, very unique um, challenges that young girls face and especially black and Latina girls in New York City and other cities. And so young, the Young Women's Initiative was um, launched a few years after the Young Men's Initiative in New York. Um, uh, unfortunately, it didn't, wasn't able to either raise or garner as much um, financial support, um, but that work I believe is still ongoing and was led by a number of really inspiring women in the city who were really thinking carefully about the needs and unique needs of that population. I think some of the work that I've seen in Oakland, for example, um, they're starting, they a long time ago started to expand um, the focus on black and brown boys to think about, okay, our Asian population, our Asian Pacific Islander population, our indigenous communities, um, uh, this idea of targeted universalism so that if you target some of the most marginalized students, other students in the system benefit as well. And, and we saw that actually, it was interesting for being a um, an initiative focused on um, young boys or, or, or men or young men and um, uh, black and Latino boys that in some of the schools, the programming did kind of um, seep into other classrooms or the programming was offered to all students. Um, and even uh, in one school, there was a, a very strong uh, reaction to the, the maleness of the initiative. And they created a, a number of um, initiatives focused on L the LGBT community um, and gender expression and sexual identity. So I think sometimes um, the conversations, even though they could be start, they could start very narrowly um, by empowering students and by empowering local actors and schools or districts, you can really um, apply some of the same questions to thinking about other marginalized communities of students and families. So uh, yeah. it could be an opportunity. Yeah. So lastly, what are you hoping, one, who are you hoping reads this? And then two, what action do you want them to take? Mm-hmm. So uh, the first part of the book, just to be really concrete, is around systems, around changing organization, thinking, thinking about those hiring, the, the mentoring, the capacity building, the leadership pieces, um, how to design initiatives. So some of that early part, I think, would be people in decision making um, uh, capacities. So district leaders, policymakers, um, even school leaders who um, make a lot of decisions for a large organization like uh, larger schools um, and, and principals, obviously. And then there are uh, the second part, part two, is really about the kind of ecological space of schools and of classrooms. And so I feel like those are targeted for principals again, and also for teachers or educators that could be after school educators, um, tutors, youth development programs. How, what are the kind of critical questions that we can raise in those spaces? What are some of the ways, strategies, practical approaches for um, increasing culturally relevant education, creating safe spaces um, and, and again, uh, providing opportunities for that critical consciousness um, among teachers and students. And, and I, I also think um, for parents, I'm a parent of two young girls um, now and um, biracial and who are in predominantly white schools. And I think a lot about, okay, how can I advocate for them? How can I make sure that they're seeing themselves and their teachers and their classrooms and their textbooks? So I think uh, having some knowledge and understanding of, and I'm sure many parents already do, um, uh, but concrete ways of advocating for, um, for our communities and for our, our kids um, I think that might also be uh, another potential audience. Um, and, and last, I'll say that I, I end the book with um, hopefully some broader questions, um, ways to think about how to um, how the larger community and the organizing community could also be part of uh, this educational space and the ways that they already have influenced educational spaces across the country. Um, and so thinking about how do we hope, how do we continue um, 
creating joy and um, perpetuating the hope in our systems. Because I, I think we know the system is broken, but um, I continue to hope that we can fix it. Well, thank you so very much for taking the time again to come back and talk to us about this book. And the book again is Am I My Brother's Keeper? Educational Opportunities and Outcomes for Black and Brown Boys. Thank you so very much for Thank you, Eldroy. Thank you so much. I'll see you soon. Yes. So we're going to take a quick break and then when we come back, I have another brilliant, amazing friend to bring to the front of the class as we talk more about improving educational outcomes and opportunities for black boys, but also black girls. We'll be right back. How can it be? Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I have another brilliant friend to bring to the front of the class. We've gotten into a little bit of trouble every now and then. Um, So Joanne Smith is a Haitian American feminist. She's a human rights advocate and social worker. Yay for social workers here in New York City. She currently lives in Brooklyn and is the founder and executive director of a nonprofit organization called Girls for Gender Equity, which I have had the opportunity to work with sometime. Joanne, welcome to the front of the class on Sunday Civics. Thank you for having me. So because you are a newbie, I'm going to begin where we begin with every new guest at the front of the class with you sharing the story of your first civic action. Oh, so interesting. Okay. Uh, my, my first civic action, I would have to say, or at least what grounded me in civic action, I would have to say is um, as a Haitian Um, my mother was deeply rooted in politics. Um, Our family, uh, her, her siblings, grandmother and grandfather, uh, aunties fled Haiti during the Papa Doc, Baby Doc regime. And they fled due to state sanctioned violence, due to the coup, due to the way in which the government um, was truly responding to the citizens of Haiti. And so um, my mother ingrained in us, you know, that, you know, (laughs) politics, are uh, such an important part of our lives and that we have to have an active voice in politics. And she brought me to the polls when um, Bill Clinton was running in <laughs> 92. And she worked the polls, um, political polls from 92 all the way until last year um, at 72 when she just couldn't do it anymore. She couldn't stand so long in Florida now. Um, so that was my first political action. My first voting came a bit later in 2000 um, when I was able to vote. And um, yeah, the rest is history. I think around uh, the same same time, same presidential election for the first time. But I'm, a, as you know, huge fan and supporter of GGE and want to know we've had other folks on when we were talking about the Black Girls Agenda overall. But before we start talking about the school environment for Black girls and what we need to do or what hasn't, <laughs> what hasn't been done, I want to talk about Girls for Gender Equity, GGE, and what sparked the creation, the idea for creating this organization and this work and why it's so important. I love GGE. Every time I think about the start of GGE, it just something sparks inside of me because it really came organically from a place of feeling um, really tired of the way that young people were treated in New York City. Um, especially New York City, because I was born here and then I moved to Maryland and I moved to uh, Montgomery County that, you know, had the first Title IX policies and and was one of the richest counties on the East Coast for a long time. Um, But it wasn't rich for me, you know, a Haitian born uh, child of a single mom, Um, you know, but I benefited from it. And I got to see the benefits of Title IX, of getting equal access to sports, getting opportunity to, you know, learn to type and drive and do things in school that when I came back to New York, once I graduated uh, from college, from Bowie State University, realized had I grown up in New York, I wouldn't have gotten those opportunities. Um, I went on to work in the field of HIV and AIDS and uh, prevention, preventing children from going into the foster care system and realized even that was designed solely for the parents. It was as, as though working with the parents was gonna have a trickle down effect on the young people. Um, so I would volunteer and create programming for young people and sit with them and actually talk to them 
Um, and I say that because, you know, caseworkers at the time wouldn't because it wasn't billable hours. Um, and so for me, it was really clear that one, I could not be on that hamster wheel of working that way within the system. Uh, but two, my passion was young people. My passion was girls. My passion was um, creating opportunities and, you know, just seeing the spark in their eyes and uh, giving them an opportunity to show the world what they have. Because I understood that, you know, had I not been giving certain opportunities and even to today, um, that I wouldn't be on this trajectory of my life the way I am. I wouldn't have a certain uh, resources I have. I wouldn't have a certain experiences I have. Um, and that we all deserve that, that we're not free until all of us are free, obviously, and that I couldn't continue on a path of you know, feminism without reaching back and saying, all right, like we all go together. And so creating Girls for Gender Equity came um, through a fellowship opportunity and the fellowship opportunity, which was supposed to be 18 months, turned into <laughs> what will be 20 years next year in June. Wow. Fellowship yeah. for 18 months to 20 years. I love it. So we're talking about, I think I titled the show, like My Brother's Keeper, and my sister's protector, <laughs> you know, some, something like that in that talking about the environment for black girls in schools right now, there are different experiences. I think one overall, we can say if you are a person of African descent in a, a school environment, there is a guarantee right now that there are a number of things that you experience that are not positive. It can, you know, be from marginalization to violence to not a great quality education to not resources to actually support you. There are a number of things that Black and Latino children overall, or I would say just uh, children of color overall, because you can even, you know, go down for Native peoples as well, not experiencing or not getting the quality education they need. Talk a bit about what the school environment is for Black girls today, what the sort of state of play is. Sure. And I mean, what we're finding at Girls for Gender Equity and many national organizations is that um, Black girls in the United States, they're more likely to attend poorly funded schools, more likely to experience expulsion. Um, actually, one in 10 Black um, girls were, we, we had to use the, the 10 frame because there were no white girls expelled in New York City public schools. So, you know, black girls get expelled in New York City public schools 10 times the rate of any other girls in schools. Um, we find that black girls are over-policed in schools. New York City has the fifth largest police district that works from the New York City schools. 1,700 schools, 1.1 million students. And within that, um, our youth are policed from the time that they go to school and have to go through scanners um, to their clothes, their dress code, um, to being told that you know their uh, uniform or their um, clothes are too provocative, that they have to cover up, even though they're wearing the same uniform that the white girls are wearing. Um, they, they're told that, you know, there's a lot of bias around then why and how trauma is showing up for black girls. And so much of that is responded with by police, um, by suspension, by punitive measures, as opposed to creating environments for black girls you know, where they can express the trauma that they're going through, where they can express the, you know, their identity um, one in 10 um, TGNC girls, because when we say Black girls and youth, we're talking about gender non-conforming and non-binary Black youth as well, reported lacking resources to be able to go to school. Many of the young people that we work with and have worked with, especially during the pandemic, you know, were of two minds. One, you know, returning to school felt like, you know, um, something that they they fear because of the how punitive school is and two returning to school is actually a place where their mental health resources um could be supported so schools that had social workers they felt like they were missing those resources and missing that support and they're expected to keep showing up on zoom um and expected to keep showing up uh for their families without the support that they typically have during the day so I mean, I think what we know is that 
you know, black girls deserve space in school to be able to thrive in that schools and institutions have to simply adjust the way in which they work with black girls and see black girls. They can't adultify black girls and see them as young adults. They have to meet them at their youth development stage. You know, we have had a case in the United States of third graders, eight years old, being arrested by police. Just last year in Rochester, New York, a nine-year-old being pepper sprayed by police and having to tell the police when they say, you're acting like a child, I am a child, a nine-year-old. So, you know, our young people, our black girls are often seen just, just as young adults, as sassy, as, you know, troublemaking. And, um, you know, that's the wrong narrative. That is something that, you know, we are working at Girls for Generically to change. Yeah. You know, I remember very distinctly, you know, I went to a public school here in New York City, elementary, junior high school, New York City and on Long Island for some time. I remember when they brought metal detectors to Springfield High School. Mm. I remember sitting on the porch me and my cousins, we were sitting on the porch playing or talking or doing something And we overheard the conversation. I think it was my grandmother and a neighbor or something like that, because Springfield had a reputation Mm -hmm. (laughs) like back then of being, you know, particularly, you know, a lot of fights, no guns or anything like that yet, I don't think. But there was a reputation of it being a tough school. And I remember them having a conversation sort of in the background about, oh, no, our kids ain't going to Springfield. You know, like that, like that, you know, we're not going there because, you know, they just got metal detectors there. And it was an indication that, you know, something was wrong. There were too many kids there or too many bad kids there. The administrators weren't able to, like, keep a hold on things. So the police had to come in and, like, put metal detectors. And it was a big thing because we hadn't experienced, you know, that it is a regular occurrence for like going to a school with metal detectors. It wasn't normal, mm-hmm. you know, then. And then going to your point, as you said earlier, about now for black and brown uh, kids in New York City, because it, and it is only our schools, right? Like there's not mm-hmm. like, <laughs> there's no schools on in certain neighborhoods that are, that have the resources they need that have to go through metal detectors or lock their phones up pay to lock their phones up across the street at the bodega because they not, th- that doesn't exist <laughs> in, there is a dis- clear disparity here. In New York. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. They would lose their minds. There would be a, a mom march. <laughs> if I had to lock up my phone, if they had to lock their phone up across the street and pay for it in order for it to happen. But I remember that distinctly and sort of that, that changeover and what has evolved. And as you mentioned, talking to young people and Dr. Adriana mentioned earlier on in the show that young people are distinctly aware of their environment and how you value or view them based upon the environment you allow to happen. My school is dilapidated. If I don't have resources to do what, but I, I can see across town. I have friends across town that have this no problem. Absolutely. They are aware of their value to you. They, they're hundred percent aware. I mean, I, that that's the work we do at Girls with Gender Equity and we get to see it every day. And it, it always surprises me when people are just like, wow, the young person was so articulate and they had such an understanding. And it's like, no, they're actually just an expert of their experience. And of course they're articulate, no matter how they speak, we all are articulate. It, it, it just, young people are able to tell you not only what it is that they're experiencing, but also how to change it. Um, it's the space and time and resource and investment and value of hearing them and creating conditions that allow for their strategies to come forth. Um, I think so many of you know our strategies are su- such adult and bureaucratic strategies um, that we limit the radical imagination of young people uh, who have strategies for change, who understand and are willing to participate in what it takes to have healing circles instead of being suspended, uh, be able to, you know, have conversations around what happened. They just need the tools and the investment. And that's our work and our job to do what it, what happens is it becomes easier to punish, 
um, to to be more punitive, to um, you know silence. It just it becomes easier because then teachers can go on with the school day, and then you know the schools can receive the funds that they're supposed to receive for the number of students that they're supposed to have in school, right? Rather than working with the students, rather than working with the families, and rather than working with the administration, you know that really needs to address the bias that they experience um, around Black girls. Yeah. So now earlier in the show, we had a conversation with Dr. Adriana about the My Brother's Keeper initiative. And while, you know, there's this national program through the Obama administration that everybody is aware of, the ESI program here in New York City that Dr. Adriana, you know, was a part of being a researcher on and participating on is actually a precursor to that. But, you know, we talked about the critique of this national organization with a specific focus on Black boys, which, you know, the critique from conservatives, the critique from white folks, you know, (laughs) is going to happen. But particularly one of the valid critiques was about the exclusion of Black girls. And I know that you yourself were very vocal, among others, about that exclusion. Talk to us a bit about where you know, we talk about young people knowing where they stand, you know, or knowing the value of other people towards them. What were your views on this from that initiative? Sure. At the time of the announcement of the initiative, um, it, it just came as such a shock that our, you know, first Black president would have a gendered and racial initiative that would exclude Black girls. Um, and at the time, we, you know, uh, co-conspirators, uh, colleagues, comrades, um, can, Kim Crenshaw, uh, Dr. Brittany Cooper, and so on. Um, we we came together in coalition to lead a "Why We Can't Wait" campaign, and we thought it would. Well, I'll say I'll speak for myself. I thought it would be easier. <laughs> I thought, of course, you know, the President Obama and the administration would hear. You know, you have girls in your home. You you, you your wife. Your you know your mother-in-law. Um, they all surround you, your mom, like you must, you know, center girls within any gender and racial initiative um, 50 years after the Civil Rights Act passed. Um, but it but it wasn't. It, it was heard as, you know, that's just not possible or treated as though it's just not possible to hold all our children at the same time. And we weren't asking for just girls initiative. We were asking for my children's keeper, um, a way in which we address the racial inequity and gender inequity that our young people experience as they grow up, you know, through their, through institutions, through in the world, right? Um, And understanding that we had to get to the systemic issues that impacted them, right? From poverty to criminalization, um, to, to health disparities, we had to, truly address you know the needs of our young people directly um so you know it was a it was a long push i'll say uh, a fight um and we were able to move at least the white house council on women and girls at the time um the beautiful thing that has come from that is of course you know young people were able to be activated and seen in ways that you know at the time the initiative i don't know that it had a civic engagement component to it and so um, throughout the last six years, we've been able to politicize young people, black girls, non-binary youth and boys <laughs> and gender non-conforming youth um, to understand that generational equity, you know, has to be in tandem. It cannot be something that is just for, you know, one demographic, especially as we fight and experience, you know, we, we, we have seen, you know, just recently with, you know, 16 year old Michaela Miller, who, you know, during Pride Month, I, I it would be um, beyond me if I don't say it was killed by a group of students, um, and she was killed. You know, for being gay, for being black, it's still under investigation. Um, but the sheriff's department really used her being queer as a threat or a way to silence her mother. Um, and so, you know, we can't miss that nuance in understanding what Black girls go through at these intersections, right? Because when we talk about pride and we talk about, you know, gay rights right now, we don't see Michaela Miller on shirts, <laughs> right? Um, you know, Makai Bryant, who was killed at foster care, um, 
when she was being beat by adult women, when she was being threatened by adult women, she was defending herself. And then of course, fatally shot by police, you know, while she was in the act of swinging on another woman. And, you know, we don't talk about how institutions, you know, have no accountability to black girls, don't know how to support black girls trauma. And so we knew that couldn't be lost on the administration. Um, I think that the nuance that boys and men even need in a way gets lost. It's, it's not a pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality that we should have. It's, you know, a, a gentler, more nuanced approach to what it means to, you know, end patriarchy, what it means for men and boys to grow up in their wholeness um, without having to perform masculinity. Um, you know, it goes much deeper than that. And so that's, that's what we wanted. And, and we're on our way. Um, I, I don't rely on the administration to get us there. This is revolutionary work, right? And this is lifelong work, but they are a strategy. And so currently in the Biden-Harris administration, there's a gender policy council um, that was started that has all the learnings <laughs> from the White House Council on Women and Girls. And they are intentionally working to support and, and um, resource the needs of Black girls. Well, thank you so very much, Joanne, for sharing that and sharing those notes. And it's, you know, really important to be, as you mentioned, intentional, right? Like these things don't just happen. It was intentional that the reason why you we have certain views of ourselves and of our young people to begin with. So we have to be very intentional on how we break structures, on how we create better environments, school environments and home environments and community environments for our young people in order for them to live and thrive. Of course, you know, I'm gonna have you back at some point. We're gonna talk about something else, but <laughs> thank Hi. you so much. Thank you so much. I'll just say this last thing, support the national agenda for black girls. Just take a look at our website and take, take a look at the memo and let us know what you think. Thank you. And yes, we have had GGE on before and talking about the National Black Girls Agenda, which, by the way, wasn't just grown folks writing something on behalf of young people. Young people were actively involved and gave voice in terms of what they need in order to live whole lives and have the resources they need. So definitely check that out. Thank you so much, Joanne. Yeah. We'll be back next Sunday with more class and more civics lessons you can use. Have a good day.